Hello, fellow travelers. It's Bliss. I just wanted to give you a little message before this episode and apologize for the sound quality. You know, with Stu and I on the road, sometimes we just have to uh, make do with what we have. We felt like the content of this episode was worth it. So stick with us. Thank you for loving us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the RV Life Podcast with Bliss Young and Stuart Fishbein. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we discuss uh, wide turns, uh, driving in the pouring rain, and removing of cat hair from your new blankets. How's everybody? <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> we could do it. We could do an RV living podcast, could we? I'm sure, um, I'm sure there are probably hundreds. I was going to say, there's probably people who are actually doing more of it than we are. <laughs> yeah. would, would, they, would they be as funny as we are? No, no, no way. Maybe. No. <laughs> no. Maybe. Yeah, some of them might be. Um, I'm not actually in my RV, but you are. It's your. It's our first recording from what you're calling the beast. Yeah, it's the beast. Yours is hope and I'm in the beast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah, it's a big box. We talked about that last podcast. So uh yeah, the, the last oh, sorry. oh you the that's right. The last recording we did actually you were with Marin. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we weren't you were you were traveling, but we weren't recording from from your beast. That's correct. I was in Berea, yeah. Kentucky, Berea, Kentucky, and now, now I'm in Monterey, Tennessee at the Bell Ridge campground. And I went for a nice hike this morning. I sent you some pictures. Mm -hmm, um, beautiful. Yeah, it was pouring rain yesterday. And uh, I guess the, uh, my RV with the side outs is, is designed, I, I called my RV dealer and because I got a lot of water <laughs> on the floor. Um, uh -huh. the, uh, the slide outs are designed to prevent dust from getting in, but they're not really good at preventing rain from getting in. And I think it was mostly because I was driving. On, and the water was coming up from underneath. So anyway, yeah. So um, today I'm in Monterey, Tennessee. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to Nashville. I'm going to see some friends in Nashville. I might cool. even try, to, if I can find a place to park the beast, I might even try to go to the Edmonton Oilers Nashville Predators hockey game at Bridgestone Arena there in Nashville and then take a walk on the famous street in Nashville, wherever that is. I don't know the names of it. So that's, that's fun. Yep. So that's just, that's, that's my life right now. Isn't the farm in Tennessee? That's it. That's correct. The farm is in Tennessee. And we talked about that yesterday. Um, and we talked about, I went to dinner that night. I guess it wasn't yesterday. It was a couple of days ago. I went to dinner that night with Marin and Margo, and we talked about the farm and I completely forgotten that it's in Tennessee. It's in like Summersville or someplace like that. And I'm, I looked it up and it's actually not that far. So I thought I would spin out over there. I don't even know what it's like, but I want to see it because Marin and Indie Birth people want, and maybe even Nathan's involved. I don't know. We want to potentially try to do something like a new farm 
Uh, what are you talking about? You can't give them credit. You and I have been talking about this for a while. Yeah, we've been talking about <laughs> it, right? <laughs> talking. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Well, we got to find, you got to find the right real estate. You got to actually yeah. find a place that's got cabins, that's got, you know, um, it's set up right. Because if you're going to have people come and stay there and travel, they got to have a place to stay. Right. Uh, yeah. If I could get the Vanderbeeks to give up their, their house and their property, I'll take that. But I don't think they're about ready to give it up because they yeah. have like, they have um, about 12 cabins on their property, at least I think that many. Yeah. That, they might be interested in something. You should talk to them. They're pretty cool. Um, you should reach out to Ina May and see if, if you can, uh, if you can record with her while you're there. Is she making appearances these days? I don't know, but try. All right. I'm making notes. <laughs> I would. I would yeah. definitely be reaching out. That would be fun. I'm sure our listeners would really enjoy our fellow travelers. Excuse me. Would um, would really enjoy that. They would. They would enjoy that. Um, I would enjoy that. I haven't seen Ida May in probably almost a decade, I think. So um, I think I was there when you saw her last. Yeah. In Santa Barbara, right? Is that where it was? Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember that stuff. I know what I had for oh. breakfast, but that's it. <laughs> okay. Let's pass right, that. Then. Well, you know, when we're traveling, um, you know, you talked about it. It's it's changing your life. It's changing your schedule. And one of the things that I that I noticed is that the weather changes. And as the weather changes frequently, now it's it just it was beautiful this morning. I went for a hike, and now it's raining. And mm -hmm. um, your mood changes. You know, it affects you. It affects you. Uh, it affects the activity. It affects your planning. It affects your everything. When you grow up or when you spend 40 years in Southern California, you forget that. Because mm -hmm. it's almost, you, you have traffic, yes, but you never have weather. Almost never. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Rarely. So, so your yeah, body's planning new rhythms. Mm -hmm. And planning around the weather. Like, you know, when people were farmers and stuff, you like you planned around the weather and the seasons. And so when you're in a little bit more of that living more, um, you know, I know we're in RVs, it's not exactly the same as farming, but you have to, you have to really take those things into consideration and it changes how you plan, uh, which is, which is interesting. Yeah. You're probably right. for a hundred years, the second most read book in the, in the world, in the, or at least in America was the farmer's almanac. Mm -hmm. The farmer's mm -hmm. almanac, you know, they, they would, they looked at history and tried to predict weather and they predicted cycles and, and uh, a lot of other things, obviously, in the Farmer's Almanac, but second only to the Bible, I guess, is the most read book in the United States, at least um, in the last hundred years. Are you going to read it? The Farmer's Almanac? <laughs> I don't know. No, but I am reading some interesting stuff right now. I'm reading Maltese Falcon. Just started that. That was an old movie with Humphrey Bogart, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. But I never read the book, so I'm reading the book. And then I, I, I've taken on some bigger projects, which I haven't started yet. I want to read de Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America. Uh, wow. You know, it, he wrote that in the, the 18th century. Um, I mean, it, it, sounds, it sounds like a deep dive. Good luck. Yeah, well, some people, some of us have to remember what democracy in America <laughs> used to be like. <laughs> well, I'm in Sedona, Arizona. I'm with a, um, a lovely... Uh, midwife who's a CNM who um, has uh, 
been working with me as her mentor, um, which has been quite fun for both of us. And she really wanted me to come out and it just not miraculously, but you know, the universe supported me coming, which was really beautiful. Um, and so I'm learning a lot about, about the land and vortexes, and I'm going to go to the birthing cave tomorrow, which I'll tell you guys more about, um, in the next episode. Um, but I'm, I can, I can feel how special the land is. Um, so I'm really enjoying being here. What is the birthing cave? I don't know. It's a, it's a sacred, uh, land where they used to do births. Um, that's what I know. And I'll tell you, yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, this land, they never, she was telling me last night when we went on our night hike, they never, they never lived here. They didn't, they only came here to do ceremony in this particular area. It wasn't intended to be a place where you lived because it was so sacred. But, you know, the whiteies, they don't really pay attention to sacred places. No, so. you know, it, it was a paradise. So, you know, the old Eagle song called Someplace Paradise, Kiss It Goodbye. So that's what happens when you, you know, you take a place like that. Then the whiteies were not in touch with Mother Earth. You're right. We weren't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We just were in, in, we just wanted to take it over and make it ours. So you know, anyways, so I was, um, I was thinking that, you know, we talk about some things a lot and we talk about it over and over again. And I, and I was just thinking this morning that we sound like a broken record. And then I realized that there's probably a generation of people that have no idea what that means. <laughs> broken record. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they, you know, if you tell that to a, a you know, 16 year old kid, you sound like a broken record. They, they don't have any. What do you mean? You cracked a record or you I mean, they don't even know what a record is, first of all. But secondly, the idea that a needle gets stuck. they you know they don't know that you know and it's never in the movies before and so there's a lot of slogans and things like that that um that really don't have a lot of meaning anymore but we gotta gotta carry on our traditions too even though some of them aren't certainly in touch with mother nature um i have a quick correction not a quick correction just uh last week when i talked about uh the calcium thing i talked about oral rehydration with, and I called it Bannon bag. And that's because I, I mm-hmm. was spelled incorrectly to me, but it's banana bag. And it's, and it's oh. <laughs> yeah, banana bag. And it's, it's called banana bag oral rehydration solution. You can find it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere. And uh, right. for, for traditional midwives or people that don't carry IVs, or even for those of us that do, it might not be an unreasonable thing to put in your birth kit. Right. Bananas. Lovely. Okay. Okay. Is it time for our sponsors? Oh, we could do a sponsor thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, which one should we do first? <laughs> <laughs> let's do, let's do element. Okay. Let's do element. So element is LMNT and element is a tasty electrolyte drink that has no sugar, no fat, none of the. Yes. Like yes. us. That's Correct. why we love them. Right. And it's, you know, it's great for, uh, for women in labor. It's great for birth workers who don't take care of themselves that well. And it's great for people who work out. Um, it, because a lot of the drinks that we have now are just carbonated or they have sugar in it or they have fake sugar in it or they have things in it. This has none of that stuff. It just has um, some of the, all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. And as you like to say, Bliss, it comes in a little packet. So it's, it's bio-friendly. So you don't have to waste bottles or cans or anything like that. To use it right 
Yeah. And they have, they have some really cool flavors too. Mango chili and they have like a chocolate salt and they have all kinds of really cool flavors. So you should definitely check them out. It's worth yeah, it. So you, you go to uh, L, uh, drink element. That's drink and put in the code word, uh, or excuse me, backslash birthing instincts. And then you, for $5 shipping, you get a free sample pack. So support our sponsors. They support us. And we're thankful for Element. Absolutely. See, we're winging our own commercials now. I know you're very good. You're no, very good. The, the, the um, on my desk back at home. <laughs> you can, you, he's Dr. Fishbein Stew is uh, Dr. Stew, whatever your name is today, <laughs> um, is starting to understand some of the challenges that I had when I was on the road. You don't have a printer. You have, you know, it's just a different way of preparing a little more, a little more just coming from the heart. Um, so today, uh, we're going to talk about, um, I, you might have some other things that you want to slip in there, but I just wanted to let people know we're going to be talking about pushing and tearing, because I know that this is something that is on the heart and minds of many, many mamas when they're thinking about delivering their babies. And, um, and I think a lot of, uh, practitioners, had to stop and catch myself. Um, also, you know, are, are really wanting to do the best we can to support women um, in, in making sure that, you know, if we have the capabilities of supporting, minimizing tearing, um, I think that's on our, on our mind. So we're going to cover that today. Yeah. I just have two things on, the, on uh, that I wanted to catch real quick. Um, Great. I noticed that when you see like, pro COVID stuff on Instagram, you know, what, what, what I would probably call COVID propaganda. Like I, I was going to say pro COVID is anybody really pro COVID? <laughs> well, oh, you're right. COVID vaccine. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, there are people, there are people that have used COVID to uh, change the world. So there are people who are totally pro COVID and there are people that, uh, there are mm, human beings that have invented COVID. So they must've been pro COVID because they were inventing it. Um, but if you notice them, and a lot of them are talking now, again, they're, they're pushing on pregnancy and they're pushing specifically on women of color in pregnancy, getting vaccinated. But you notice when you see those on Instagram, the comments are shut off. Mm. And Very you know why they're shut off. Because yeah, they don't want comments. <laughs> yeah, because every single comment would be negative. Right. Mm hmm. But mm -hmm. that's one thing. And then um, I got this, <laughs> I got this note. It was a little while back, but I, I, but I forgot to read it before, but it's from Birth Education Center on Instagram. And she writes, assholes do not belong in birth. <laughs> I had another mom call me last night, 15 weeks, quote, I am high risk. My sister had an emergency cesarean last year because her blood pressure was so high. They were scared she was preeclamptic. High blood pressure runs in my family, so I will be most likely be induced at 36 weeks, unquote. So she writes, uh, wow, the prediction level of her doctor is amazing. And now the seed is firmly planted in this delicate, open, now closed pregnant mind. So I don't know. I just, I just love the first sign. Assholes don't belong <laughs> at birth. Um, right, they don't. So I'll just leave it at that because everybody knows what I'm talking about. And, you know, you and I don't have any births to discuss today. Not yet, but 
next week I'm going on call. So I'll I have some to hear a birth story from you because yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, and I'll have some because I'm in touch with uh, Dr. Flores and, and I still get all the things like the false alarm um, breach we talked about last time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm never out of it and I'm communicating all the time, but it is interesting that I don't really have any of my own birth stories. It's, it's all real. I mean, this will be a, a recurring thing that it's all real different for a while. Yeah. 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 And that's okay. But thank you for reminding okay. me of going to the farm because I will be going to the farm. Yeah. You, you can probably connect with some cool people and interview them as you're on the road. I think that's that'll be fun. Yeah, you don't hear much from the farm anymore. So you, I wonder if it's just doing its thing and then and it's quietly because I'm, I think Ina May is not practicing anymore. So, um, but I'll talk. You know, I'll try to speak to a bunch of the people there and see. Um, one thing I would like to say that's popping in my mind as you're talking about Ina May is um, a local midwife, B.J. Snell. Um, who was the midwife who uh, ran and started um, Beach Cities Midwifery, which supported lots and lots of families and was one of the first birth centers in that area to take Medi-Cal and to take insurance, did pass away. Um, so I want to send our condolences to her family. Um, we know that she will be missed by the community, but especially by the people who are closest to her. And thank you, BJ, for all that you did for all of the families for so many years. You know. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you wanted to mention before we move on to our topic? No, let's talk about tears and repairs. <laughs> <laughs> Pushing and tearing and tearing and repairing. Tearing and repairing. No, this is, um, this okay, is a good so, topic, and I'm glad you brought it up because it's a great topic. Every, you know, every birth, it's a, it, it has to come up in conversation or at least in thought, and yet I don't think that we've ever covered it, so I think it's great. No, and I think that there will be uh, places that you and I, because of our training and because of our, our experiences, um, you know, we may, we may differ a little bit, so I'm just going to say that. I think that we probably manage some of this stuff a little bit differently. So um, I, I think our fellow travelers know that that we do manage things differently. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those topics. <clears throat> so um, let's start with pushing. Um, the 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 thing that I think that I'd like to highlight the most about pushing is the difference between physiologic and directed pushing. So. Um, by the way, let's talk about semantics really fast. So physiologic or physiological? Maybe it's grammar and not semantics. But people say physiological all the time, and I say physiologic. I think physiologic makes more sense to me. Okay, I mean, good. I just wanted to be like, why, why the cull? I think mm -hmm. either could be correct, yeah. Okay. I'm, just wanted mom, to make sure. My mom was an English teacher, so I, I, I have a built-in thing in my brain and no, I, you could I use, know you could and you're either perfect. one they're both adjectives okay. basically to describe the pushing so um i think you could use either one okay good um thank you for <laughs> fact checking me <laughs> um physiologic uh birth would be if 
uh, we think about ourselves as a mammal, right? And imagine yourself as a mammal, an animal that's not being checked and directed as to when some external force tells you that it is the appropriate time for your baby to come earthside. So you're laboring and at a certain point you have an un, um, undeniable urge to push, which is very similar to when you feel like you have to have a bowel movement. So because women are so informed now, and we're watching all these videos, we're, we're read that she thinks, she's thinking with her thinking brain that she needs to push because either it's been a long time, they told 10 centimeters, she's starting to think that what she's feeling is pushing, but she's not actually getting that shift, which an external pr practitioner might be able to hear, which is the, uh, right? The like, the way that I like to pair it is when you, when you think you might be getting sick and then when your body actually starts vomiting, and then there's the, uh, right? When you actually are throwing up. So physiologic pushing is very similar. So when, when you're thinking about it, it's not the time. When you're feeling it, when your body starts to respond and that fetal ejection reflex is happening, that's the time. So I think what happens a lot of times with both practitioners and with mamas is that we lose patience. We don't actually wait for that instinct to kick in for our body, for our baby to be low enough in the pelvis, putting pressure and, and um, giving us that natural instinct. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, <laughs> the lionessing sound or the, or the guttural sound that you talk about is something that, of course, in the medical training, which again was my background, you don't have that because 80%, 90% of women have an epidural. So they have a vaginal exam. They tell them they're 10 centimeters and they tell them it's kind of push. It's time to push. And they say, well, I don't feel anything. That's right. We'll coach you or whatever. And instead of, instead of letting the epidural wear off. And, and I think there is an idea of, of speeding it up because the point of the hospital is not to give the woman a good experience. The point of the hospital is to. Efficiency. Efficiency. It's kind of like, you know, sitting down at a restaurant for a three hour dinner versus the drive through at McDonald's. Okay. Which, you know, the, the, they don't want you sitting in the drive through for two hours waiting for your hamburger to slow roast, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so the, yeah, I know my analogies are funny sometimes, but, but it's, it's, it's very much like that's the way it is in medicine. That's the way it is on TV and in the movies. Generally, people are coached to be pushing. There's this, you know, we're counting, we're pulling your knees back. And it's one, two, three, four. It drives me crazy. I mean, and again, this is something that I partook in, you know, because it was, I was regurgitating, as you like to say, what all, all that I had learned. And that was what we, we learned. As a woman's complete, she needs to push. As opposed to her telling us that she feels like, that she feels like pushing. And mm -hmm. so uh, you and I don't disagree on this at all. It, not this one, this part of it, 
um, in that physiologic pushing, unless there's a reason to try to speed it up because somebody's baby's in trouble or something like that's going on. Um, then, then waiting for the woman to tell you that she needs to push is the best thing and changing positions and doing all that you need to do to, to get that to happen. And sometimes um, it takes a long time for that to happen. It could be complete for quite a while. They can be complete for quite a while. And um, I think that there's this other issue that happens with first-time mamas because of social media is that we see all these beautiful images of these women breathing their babies out and, you know, uh, not having anybody necessarily to direct them. And so I think that, you know, if, if it goes longer than what they, they kind of have made up in their mind, they start to think that something is wrong. So I think it's good to, for people to know that a lot of those images that we see, not all, but a lot, are women who have had babies before. This is not their first delivery. And sometimes that, you know, also we hear this thing about breathing your baby out, um, which, you know, can happen in a first-time mom with a ton of time and patience. So it's not that it can't happen. It's just that um, it's not sometimes you're exhausted, you're tired, you may want to have a little bit of additional support. Um, but I think the thing as a practitioner um, that, that we should pay attention to is, you know, I talked about before on the podcast, there are these really subtle things that we do both at home and in the hospital Sometimes in the hospital, it's not so subtle, but that undermines the power of the woman. And we want to keep it centered around the woman and allowing her to have the experience of being the one that is making the decisions and is, and is directing what's happening. So when a woman is, um, you know, given the opportunity to find that natural instinct, she will talk about it later. Like, that was so amazing. Like I, you know, I could just feel the baby coming and I knew exactly what to do. And when we usurp that and we start to like, you know, we get impatient or we want to direct or whatever, she misses that opportunity. But if the mom says, could you, you know, you can tell she's getting frustrated. She's tired. She's starting to question herself. Maybe she was already a little borderline of like, calling it and wanting to go to the hospital. And you can tell now, you know, in the moment, you, you may want to offer things like, would you like me to show you where to push? Sometimes it's helpful for a first time mom for us to put our fingers inside and show them exactly where the pressure is going to be um, because they, they, they haven't felt that intensity yet and kind of been coached through that it is going to be an intense experience getting our baby through our pelvis. And some women will actually like hold back because in their minds, they think that that intensity means that something's wrong. But at that point, the intensity, the pressure that is building when the baby gets really deep and you start to push into that is exactly what we need to go through. Um, so I just kind of wanted to, to slow that part down a little bit and break it down so that we can talk about like, why do we get to the point where we start to like interfere with the process? We'll get into that in a little bit more. I just wanted to add to sort of what you said. Um, you know, when you talk about it, you talk about it from the viewpoint of home birthing. 
And when I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it, uh, my first thought is to think about it, what goes on in the hospital setting. Um, it's great to do both too. Right. And we should talk about both because, but, but there are, there are <laughs> nurses and, and midwives who are very sensitive to what you're saying. And there are many nurses and many midwives who aren't. And it's important that we understand that when, when we're talking about this, obviously um, we can't control, we can't, we can't guide every woman at every birth. So there are different circumstances and there are different types of, of nurses in, in the hospital or midwives or doc, even doctors. Not, but most doctors don't spend a lot of time pushing with their clients. They don't want to do that. They, the hospital setting, right. they, the, the nurse is the one that does most of that. Um, it was a little different when I was, I used to come and do that, but I was, I was the, I, I used to put my fingers in sometimes and try to help them to get that feeling. But a lot of them were partially numb and it helped a lot. But the other thing that we didn't do in the hospital that we can do at home is we can change position. And sometimes women will be pushing in a certain position and they won't really get a sense of it, or they're just, they're working really hard and nothing's really happening, or they're not really feeling that pressure. And you change them into a position that a lot of people frown upon, which is being on your back, you know, with your legs back a little bit, that lithotomy that classically they called the lithotomy position. But I find that some women who've had a really having a hard time pushing on all fours or squatting on the, uh, on the uh, birth stool or the toilet. Um, if they want if you need, if they ask for help at that point, if you put them on in that old, that position, which supposedly isn't the best position to be in for delivering a baby, but somehow there's, there's, there's more effective pushing. I don't know why. It's just my experience with that. It seems like that's what happens when I'm, when I'm at a birth and I'm sort of in the other room and I'm listening and I'm watching and I'm listening. And finally, when somebody walks out, Stu, Stu, I think we, we, you know, can you come and give us some advice and I'll watch them push a couple of times and I'll just turn them over and I'll help them with a couple of times. And suddenly the baby's on the perineum. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's a sixth sense. I know you have it and that I have it um, of what, what needs to be done. But the important thing is to know is that, that I've learned from all of you guys is that you just can't tell someone to start pushing. It's just not the right thing to do. Um, if you're pushing and you don't have an urge to push, it's you're, you're wasting a lot of energy. It might work. Tons. It yeah. might work, but yeah. at, at, you know, at, why, why are you doing that? Yeah. And a lot of times women will have this, um, this kind of a rest and be grateful phase midwives talk about where, you know, she's gone through transition. She's, she's calmer, you know, she's starting to like get into a a peaceful groove. Sometimes women even fall asleep. I remember Alex telling me a story that like they went and baked cookies mom completely fell asleep, you know? So, um, let her, there's nothing wrong. Let her rest. If she can sleep, if she can rest, if she can gather her, her druthers again for the work that's coming ahead of her, that's part of the natural process. Let her, as long as you were saying, as long as the baby's doing fine, you know, let her rest and she will have that instinct. It could take several hours. Yeah. And and that's normal. Right. Sometimes the baby's head needs to mold. Sometimes the baby's head needs Mm -hmm. to rotate. Sometimes, you know, with a breach, we always tell, we always suggest that let, let them labor down. We don't really want you pushing with a breech birth until you really can't not push. And why why should a head down be any, why should a head down be any different? Right. Why should a head down be any different? 
Exactly. So you know what time it is, Bliss? It's time to talk about boobies. Yeah, it's time to talk about one of our good sponsors, Bamboobies, who we love dearly. One, we love them because they sponsor us. <laughs> but two, yes. because they have great organic products. Right. And we're not going to have any sponsors that we can't stand behind what they do. So we love them for that. Yeah, I wish we had like a beer sponsor. <laughs> I don't drink beer, but you do. <laughs> no, I know. No, because I, I mean, Bamboobies is great stuff, but it's not products for Dr. Stu, put it that way. It's products yeah. for products for our listeners, but that's... Products for the bump, breastfeeding and beyond, they like to say. So yeah, it's, you know, they, they, they focus really on comfort for moms, and both physically and emotionally. And they have great products. I mean, we've, we've talked in the past about their nursing pads and nursing bra, and you can mention a little bit about that in a second. But we also talk about um, some of their organic products, including their organic nipple balm, which is 100% organic. It's non-toxic. You don't have to wipe it off before you have breastfeed the baby. Um, it makes breastfeeding more comfortable for the mom. And it's got natural ingredients, including extra virgin olive oil, beeswax, shea butter. You know, I love stuff with shea butter in it too. It's actually really good for you. Yeah. Even guy, I do. <laughs> and, uh, there's no lanolin or, and it's made in the USA. So tell us a little bit about the, the nursing stuff. Well, they have um, the nursing pads that I've talked to you about that I really love. They're the number one sustainable nursing pad in a wonderful heart shape made with bamboo renewable um, as a renewable source. And the reason they do that heart shape is so that you, it's not so visible. Those of you who have worn um, breast pads, nursing pads, you know that <laughs> you can see them through your clothes and it's, it's not cute. So that's the reason for the heart shape design and it works so well. And then they've got a really great, um, also made with bamboo, um, stylish racerback nursing bra that can be used in your wardrobe that has a little clasp and you can um breastfeed wherever you're at so check them out they're great they're great for the environment they're great for mamas and um tell them about the discount codes too yeah they go if you go to bamboobies.com and you put in the code instincts that's i-n-s-t-i-n-c-t-s you get uh 25 off your purchase and so we would hope that you'll support them. Um, we are going to encourage them to come out with a organic beer. And uh, <laughs> then I'll be really encouraging you to uh, support them. No, it's <laughs> support them because they support us and they make the, the um, possibility of our podcast um, go. And making great products. So thanks, Bamboobies. Thanks, Bamboobies. So let's talk about pushing positions a little bit, Stu. Do you want to say okay. anything additionally to what you we're talking about or do you want me to start well i can i you know you probably have a lot more to say about it but i i would just say that in the hospital a lot of women don't have a choice i mean I, the way i said that i know what you're going to say because they always have a choice but but they're numb <laughs> they've got an epidural in place they they really can't be standing they can't be squatting the anesthesiologist won't let them or however the rules the hospital rules won't let them so they're going to have to be on their side or on their back and so I'm I'm a, a fan of pushing in whatever position the woman feels like she's effectively doing something. Um, if she can't move her legs, then then she needs legs supported. If she can move her legs, then you know I I I do think that upright pushing probably is better. 
for the same reasons it's better with breeches as you have gravity working for you and your pelvis is more open. Um, now upright could be, uh, you know, leaning on the bed with the, on your knees on the floor. Or it could be squatting on a toilet or the birth stool or something like that. But, but being upright is probably better than being flat on your back, at least for, for certain situations. Um, but I, I don't think there should be a, 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 a rule of as which one's best. Uh, of what position is best? Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's really great that you're talking about, you know, the difference between um, hospital versus home because the majority of, of women, um, birthing people are still delivering in the hospital. A high percentage is still choosing to have an epidural or gets an epidural. Um, and so I think it's really important. And I talk to people about this all the time. Like, you know, when we think about birth, we think we imagine hospital, a lot of us, you know, that's kind of become what birth is. And really that's hospital birth. It's very different than what birth looks like when you're left alone, when you're not medicated. So I think that's really great that you're making that distinction. Um, so an unmedicated mom, whether it's hospital or home, um, you know, she is going to be able to follow her instincts a lot easier obviously, because yeah. she's in touch with them, right? Like she's not medicated. So um, if you are in the hospital, I know from, from doing doula work, um, you can raise up the back of the bed and do kind of a hands and knees position. It's possible for you to be able to do that unless you're really, really numb. Um, and then a lot of times women also can do the squat bar on the bed, um, even with an epidural. So I think, I think the, uh, the thing that's important is to be able to advocate for yourself and talk to your doctor ahead of time about your desire to be able to use different positions than just the lithotomy position. However, if we are in the lithotomy position, um, there's, you and I have talked about this. I've showed you some images, um, you know, the way that obstetrics learned was to pull the knees back all the way almost to her ears, really. And sometimes women can actually get injured, uh, overstretched from the quote unquote support that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, but, but really what you want to do is keep your knees more parallel and bring them back because that actually opens the pelvis rather than when you bring them out and back, it actually closes the pelvis more. So you had a video, um, that, you had a video up, I think that you did. That was it? Yeah. You? You, with you, you were playing with a pelvis with somebody. Was it you? Or, mm -hmm. And it showed that uh, the mm -hmm. the position when you had your legs in the wrong position, how your pelvis closed down. Bliss, why do you think that the that the knees back, shoulders to the shoulders, and you know, really pulling hard and all that stuff? Why did that come into play? Why why is it just stupidity? Was it just <laughs> yeah? I mean, look at look at all the things that you guys didn't learn. You didn't learn all a whole bunch of stuff that is is uh, instinctual or is, you know, where things are connected, like breastfeeding and hormones and all of that. I mean, they still don't. Really I, talk I, I about think it, I think it was I think it was just just paternalist paternalism. Thinking of this is the best position. I mean, it's the same thing when off off topic slightly, but when we used to send people for. Um, X-ray pelvimetry, we talked about this in a previous podcast for breach, they would take the X-ray pelvimetry flat on their back and they do a, a, a anterior and cross table X-ray. And then we would measure the things. And if it didn't have the right measurements, <laughs> then they got a C-section. Yeah. 
But the worst mm -hmm. position you can possibly be in for your pelvis is to be flat on your back. And yet that's, that's the position that, they, that we use to, to prevent people from having a vaginal birth. And they thought they were being innovative at the time. So I guess you're right. I mean, it, you only know what you know. And, but now we know that that's a bad position to be in. And yet it's still pretty much standard of care. Like a lot of the right. things. Yeah. I mean, we talk about it. Babies to the warmer, 15 seconds of delayed cord clamping, or the baby will have too much hemoglobin. And, you know, all babies need to have their bilirubins checked. And they're, you know, we, we know all that stuff that goes on. But I'm just wondering. But it's always worked for me, though. The other thing, too, is that that position is how I did most of my births through my entire career. Mm -hmm. You think about it. I did 12, I, you know, 20. Well, it's, it was 20, 28 years I was in the hospital setting and only 12 outside. So somehow that position still works. Not saying that it doesn't work. I'm saying that it can cause lots of different kinds of trauma. And also I've, I've been at births with you where you've also used fundal pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I think that that, is um something that can work but i think it can cause trauma yeah it can cause both well it can cause emotional trauma too but i only you know it would only do that in a situation where it was either that or get a vacuum on or do something else and if i could avoid putting a vacuum on i'd rather do that that sort of thing most of the time yeah absolutely absolutely and i will bet i will um, bet that we did it sometimes bliss because we were all exhausted and mom just said do whatever you have to do to get the baby out and we were so happy to oblige her because we, we were at wit's end as well. Right. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you're, you know, when you're under, under so much intensity, you know, if you, if we take ourselves out of um, the experience of birthing and we think about, we have some empathetic imagination in terms of like when you're under so much intensity and you want something to be done, Sometimes you don't always understand um, what the what that pressure rushing uh, kind of manipulation is going to feel like until it's happening, and you may not choose that another time, but you're choosing it then because you know you you want to be done with it, which I'll talk about a little bit more in terms of caring. Uh, but um, you know you don't always know what you're asking for. Sometimes you just want someone to help you be done with it you know mm -hmm. so um so we were talking about medicated pushing but also i wanted to talk a little bit about unmedicated the position that a woman should be in is the one where she feels most powerful where she feels strong um and i think a lot of times women imagine themselves in the tub Again, it's an Instagram thing. I think when you think about being outside of the hospital, a lot of times women think about water birth. Um, and sometimes some women just don't feel like they are really grounded when they're in the top. So sometimes getting women out of the water to, you know, what I'll do sometimes is be like, hey, do you need to pee? Like maybe we could get up and go to the bathroom and, you know, sit on the toilet for a little bit because a lot of times the pressure on the toilet can be quite effective. Um, and then she can start to really feel that sensation and she may decide not to get back into the water. Um, so yeah, the most, the, the most powerful place to push is where you can really feel like you're making effective movement. And sometimes um, asking your provider, your practitioner 
if you're a first time mom to support you, to direct you, because sometimes you do need to, to know that the little tiny pushes are going to take you forever and ever and ever, right? Like the longer uh, sustained pushing, um, so we're not counting, like we're not counting to 10, but we're like helping the woman understand that getting under that pubic bone, you, you might have to have a longer, more extended push to, to be able to make that navigation rather than those tiny little pushes she'll probably get there but it could be many 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 hours so yeah we can talk a little bit about breathing in a little bit i just have a quick question though is this something that a lot of doulas will practice with their clients um you know during their prenatal time about talking about positions for pushing or is that not really something that comes up no, I think a lot of times people will talk about positions for pushing just, just so the mom can imagine something different than what she's seen in the media, too. It's also something in our model that we really, really should. Again, I don't think that even though I practice a, a hybrid prenatal model, I don't think that I spent a lot of time discussing this. I sort of deferred this to the doulas. And but in a midwife practice, you probably would be doing this, talking about this in at your prenatal visits about the difference in pushing and, and, you know, you, you assess each client differently. Some clients are very on top of it, very independent and other clients become very dependent on you. And then they, you, they want you to tell them what to do and what it's time to do this and it's time to do that. So um, again, individualized individualization of care is, is the hallmark of our model. It's not the hallmark of the fast medicine model. Uh, I'm going to be using that term, I think, slow medicine and fast medicine, even though it might not be exactly how Dr. Sweet wanted it to be used, but it just makes a lot of sense to me um, mm -hmm. that that slow medicine is where you take the time to get to know your client really well and integrate all of those things into your care, as opposed to trying to fit the client into the model of care. You change, you, 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 it's backwards. It's It's completely backwards, right? Yeah, yeah. So what do you okay. want to do next? So I think the thing that we also want to talk about briefly, and then we can talk more about tearing and repairing, um, is that different positions can put more pressure on the perineum. So um, just being aware of that in terms of how, you know, effective the pushing is, right? We get to a point where we're like, okay, this is really effective pushing, However, there might be um, more support needed in terms of your perineum. So when we were talking also about pulling your knees all the way back, the way that they, they do it, their OBs are taught in uh, school and in a lithotomy position. If you think about that, you're also putting more pressure on the perineum in opposed to when your knees are, are more closer together, mm -hmm. that tissue is not as tight. tight. It's not pulled so, um, right, right. So that, so that's helpful. Um, you know, it's well known amongst midwives that, um, a birthing stool is super effective, but we have usually have more tearing on a birth stool. So, you know, it could be that you get the woman to a point where, uh, she, you know, the baby's deep down and then maybe you change positions right before, if she's willing, a lot of women are just like, they start to notice that it's effective. They can feel the difference and they're so ready to just have their baby, but you might want to make sure that you're using oil and really supporting the perineum. Um, this is one of those things that midwives 
are really in conflict about too, is how much support to give a mom, to give the perineum and to not give the perineum. If we're talking about really natural deliveries, are we interfering more by supporting it? You know, there's, there's a lot of different conflicting feelings about that because you're, you, 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 should be able to visualize if we're getting to a point where we need to add um, counter pressure because you can see the skin start to blanch. But in some positions or some lighting, like if you're in the tub, you can't really see that. Um, and in home birth a lot, we don't have direct light right on the perineum. They might be in a position where they're facing away from us. Their husband might be supporting, you know, so there's a lot of um, different things that come into play. But I don't know about you, Stu, you don't do a ton of water bursts, but I also notice, um, at least in terms of skid marks, you know, where we're talking about like the labial splits and stuff like that, I see it more in water birth, which makes sense. If you think about sex in water, like friction is not always, you know, the, like, the lubrication and the friction is not always as easy, right? Uh, makes sense. You're asking me as an expert or as a, <laughs> as a practitioner of sex in water, because uh, <laughs> I'm neither, actually. Um, it's very interesting. When, <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna deflect that a little bit and not answer that exactly. But oh, I, okay. Right. Water is drying. There's. The, the, I the, think it's not, relatable. It is relatable, and you know sometimes we see pictures of women using their own hand to ease the head out. But before we get to that point, because I wanna I wanna try to do this in the natural the way the labor really goes. I wanna talk about breathing a little bit because when I learned what I learned, um, you know, we learned that, that you want the diaphragm pushing downward. You want to increase abdominal pressure. This is the Valsalva maneuver, which increases pressure on the uterus and then increases, you know, the forces to push the baby through the only way out, which is through the vagina. So, but we see a lot of people when they're, when they're pushing they're they're vocalizing at the same time. And so, I often talk about the diaphragm is pushing the wrong way in that case. It's diaphragm is pushing air out through your vocal cords in order for you to be vocalizing rather than pushing it down. Um, do you have thoughts on whether, you know, breath holding versus vocalizing um, versus uh, short, you know, short, like little grunts versus longer grunts has any benefit? Or is it just each individual person? Obviously, some women are able to push their baby out very easily with all their vocalizations. And other women, they're pushing really hard, but they're making so much noise and they're making no progress at all because it seems like all their effort is actually going up instead of down. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I have... I have this thing that I've said before, which is what did women do before we told them that they were pushing wrong? They figured it out, right? The, the pressure became so much. The baby moved down. The baby rotated. The head molded. They they pushed their babies out. They didn't need somebody to, to tell them, like, you know, you're, you're doing it wrong. However, I agree with you that um, some women are supported and the pushing phase is shortened when we help them, we guide them a little bit because you can see that they're exerting a ton of energy and not really um, making the, the impact that they want. So if you think about like coaching, 
like you would coach an athlete, right? Like in enhancing their performance and helping them get faster. There's definitely things that we know physiologically and from experience that can make a difference. So this is one of those times it's like, am I directing her because I'm impatient? Am I directing her because I can tell that she's looking for some support? Did I ask her if she's looking for support? You know, I think there, there, there are these, again, these subtle ways that we undermine a woman's power and she might not be ready for that. And I've had women like, you know, would you like me to show you what, you know, like where to push? And they're like, no, or they don't like the way it feels. And then an hour later, they're ready for it, you know? Um, And some, and some women right away are like, oh my God, that feels great. Don't stop doing that. You know? So we're there to support them um, as long as everybody's healthy and, you know, there's no reason to rush things. So I I agree with you. I think sometimes- yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, we have this delay, so I I don't mean to interrupt you, um, but I but I sure, okay. think that it's brilliant what you said is that you know what did we do before we had coach push? <laughs> what, what did women do? Uh, and and I think it's it's true that that I mean some obviously some women struggled and some women didn't struggle, but eventually the babies came out. Did they all come out perfect? No. Uh, I think a lot of it is impatience, but I will tell you that over my 12 years of home birthing. I, my birthing, the stuff that I do now is so different from what I did 10 years ago. And it's different because when I say the stuff that I do now, what I really mean is the stuff that I don't do now, because most of the stuff that I'm doing now is not doing stuff (laughs) that I used to do. It was, it was the unlearning Mm -hmm. of all the interventions and the things. So when a woman is pushing now, because I usually go with a midwife, at least to the home birth things that we're talking about, my, my own experience, um, not the hospitals and stuff like that. Um, uh, I'm usually, unless the woman wants me there and some women want me to be the one that's helping them, but most are mm-hmm. using with their doula or their partner or the, the midwife on the team when that's necessary. But the midwife on the team gen- generally leaves them alone too because they follow that instinct of leave it, letting mom do her thing. But by the time they usually want me in the room, it's usually because they want, some coaching or they want something like that. And I'll watch them push. I'll sit, you know, I do what most of my colleagues will never do in the hospital setting is I, I will sit in a, in a hallway or in the corner of the room and say, I do absolutely nothing for a while and just watch. And in the hospital model, when the doctor comes in the room, the doctor's expected to do something. So they put on a glove, they do a vag exam or they break the bag of waters, they order pit or they do something. They don't just come in the room and, and look and see what the woman's doing and how she's doing and, and just look at the husband and nod and then walk out. They just don't do that. But that's what I do more and more of. Um, and I have learned to be more patient. It's very, very hard. That transition of going from <laughs> residency to, to being a hospital-based doctor because I, I've watched it even as a resident or when I was a doctor at Cedars or any other hospital and I watched the other doctors, they would get pissed if they got called too soon. They didn't want to be mm-hmm. there too soon. All right. They got more pissed if they were called too mm-hmm. soon than if they're actually called too late, which was just telling you sort of where their mindset was. Um, but they didn't really want to sit and push with the moms. That was the nurse's job. All right. Um, and what I've learned from midwives is that it really is ultimately, unless a woman asks, it's really nobody's job. The, the woman should <laughs> yes. 
her job. It's her job, right? Yeah. It's not. It's not. Yeah, the- and and I'm and I'm going to challenge you just a little bit. Um, I think there's this thing that happens, and I've had women do it to me too, where it's like, "Save me, please, save me." And there's part of us that like we want to we want to help them make it easier, right? You see someone in pain, you see someone struggling. There's that analogy of like, you see the butterfly um, trying to come out of its cocoon and it's wiggling and it's doing all this stuff. And you look at it and you're like, oh my God, it looks like it's suffering. I should help. And so you start to peel away the cocoon and it dies. Well, the woman's not going to die, but she's losing something. So if a woman is in this place where she's like, I want you to, to, you know, like, it's more like the save me kind of thing rather than I just need some guidance, you know, before we just jump in and and be the savior, unless there's something medical, of course, and keeps saying that caveat, um, is to look at her and say, you can do this. Like, let's go there first. Like, let's support her in, in belief in herself. You've got this. Let's try this, you know, like giving her some small like uh, tips and, and, you know, like maybe that counter pressure for a couple of pushes and then backing off, you know, those kinds of things where you're giving her some coaching, some empowerment rather than coming in and doing it for her. Um, And so I just, I'm just challenging all of the practitioners to like really realize, like, are we stepping in because we're impatient? Are we stepping in that thing where we do like, oh, you look so tired. Let me, let me help you be done. Like it's all undermining her um, because there's something really powerful when a woman can deliver her own baby. And I love that you started talking about like women pushing into their own hands. Like that, that's probably the most powerful, natural thing in the world is for a woman to be able to feel the effects that she's having by putting her hand down there, supporting her own tissues, connecting the dots for herself of what it feels like, you know, and to be able to touch her baby and catch her baby. Um, So when, and not all women want, and you and I have seen that not all women want to do that. Sometimes we're like, put your hand down there, touch your baby. They're like, no, 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 no. You know, it's just, it's too overwhelming. So we don't want to force that on them either. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I, I would say anyway. that, that would be an excellent clip for uh, one of our prom- promo clips, which you just that little part that you just said. But I would add also that uh, there is a, I, I can't, I can, again, I can't get inside other people's heads, but I can speak from uh, why, wh- wh- why do males go into gynecology or obstetrics in the first place? All right. And I think some of us go in because we want, we're, you know, well, I could say I went in because I had a Jewish mother who wanted me to take care of her. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it set me up for the for the idea that I'm my job is to take care of of these people. And so, the, um, but I think there is something about a, a, a male gynecologist watching a woman suffer and having a hard time a, a harder time with it. So, it, it, and again, it's not suffering is a bad word. So you can you could slap my you could slap me for that word too. It's not really suffering that we're talking about here. It is part of the um, process, but it's, so I don't mean to use that word as a, uh, as a real descriptive term, but watching, watching a woman work so hard when you know that you might be able to help them. So it's sort of at least my nature to want to say, you know, to say that, you know, I can help you. 
And here's the question, Bliss. Is it part of informed consent for me to tell them that there's an option that I can help them? Or if I don't tell them, am I not giving them true informed consent at that moment? What, what, where does that come in to play? Well, you know, I remember this mom that you, um, we talked about before and, um, you had mentioned to me, you know, you could break her bag. And I knew that if I told her that I could break her bag, which would be a true informed consent, she would be like, yes, do it. However, I also knew that she was going to be able to deliver her baby on her own and she would feel so much more empowered because of her history. So I think that's a, you know, it's a fine line also, yeah. right? Like, yeah, know, we're skewing, like knowing we're skewing our consent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get your point. I do get your point. Right, we better, um, we better okay, keep going. So here. We're going to run out of time. Sake, yeah. Exactly. I told you there was a lot to talk about. Okay. So we talked a little bit about how different positions can affect, uh, you know, can um, enhance the possibility of tearing. But um, let's talk about um, preventative tearing, right? So there are some things that people talk about. They talk about perineal massage. I get asked this all the time about perineal massage, quote unquote. It's not really that fun. Um, and then also uh, devices like the EpiNo. Do you know about the EpiNo? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a device that's inserted and um, it's kind of inflated um, over time, over a period of time to supposedly prepare your tissues uh, more. for the potential of not. Yeah. So do you want to go first about what you think about those things and what well, you tell your clients? The, physi the physiology of that tissue there is, is it's adaptable. And if you, and, and there's, I don't know the, all the technical terms of it, but there's things in the collagen and, and something called elastin and you can stimulate it by doing it. If you've ever watched the neck of, Pause again. All right. Tissue. Yeah. So if you've ever watched the neck of a trumpet player, I don't know if you've ever done that, but it expands. So. It expands like amazing <clears throat> amount that they develop over time because of the way they breathe and the way they use their muscles of their neck and stuff like that to play their trumpet. Uh, probably other instruments as well. But uh, it's, it's, it's impressive, but you can train your body to do that. And so when you do perineal massage or when you use the epineau, um, uh, that sort of stretching, you can enhance what your own genetic makeup has. Some women have really good elastic tissue. Some women don't necessarily have really good elastic tissue. Uh, it's a lot of it's genetic, but you can improve it by stretching it because the more you, you do a little bit of stretching, the more you stimulate the body, to change the nature of it, make some elastin and make, make the tissue stretch more. So they're more likely to, to expand without causing a tear in some of the more rigid uh, structures, the, the uh, fascia or the, um, or some of the color, I'm not exactly sure that some of the muscles you can, you can actually encourage them to, to be more stretch, to, to stretch. So without beating that horse to death, um, I, again, it's an individual decision on, on the woman's part. I, I, I think that most of my clients probably don't do anything. I see, sometimes suggest putting vitamin E uh, on the outside of the skin, on the perineal skin, 
um, just to make it, you know, it's absorbs. And again, that might improve the elasticity of it. I don't know for sure. I don't know if there's any data on that. I've never really looked into the data on that. You may know. Uh, but I think there are things you can do to prep, but I don't know, necessarily know that they actually do good. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah. Because, because so again, you don't need to I study. Can... It's one of those things where you, it seems like it makes sense to me physiologically that you improve the elasticity of your tissue. So I don't necessarily need a study that shows that it does that, but I've never really looked to see if it does lessen tears or not. I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, they have done some studies on perineal massage and, and have said that it, that it does help, um, with lowering the chances of tearing. However, I, from personal experience of doing perineal massage and still having a tear and not really feeling like it was something that I really wanted to do with my partner and it didn't feel good doing it. I like, it was really difficult as a pregnant woman to kind of do that on your own. Um, I do believe that the body is very wise. And I do believe that a lot of the tearing that happens is from what we were just talking about, not allowing a woman to follow her own instincts um, not, not respecting physiologic pushing, um, you know, supporting her and changing positions where she feels empowered. She feels connected to what's happening, encouraging her to put her hand down and touch herself, support her own tissues, catch her own baby. I mean, I think that, that there was a study, I believe it was in France recently, where they compared directed pushing to uh, physiologic pushing and third and fourth degree tears were, were lowered considerably. Obviously, if a woman's not on an epidural and she's following her own instincts, it's very unlikely that she's going to uh, tear that badly um, because she's she's connected to what's happening. Um, I, I'm not I'm not a big fan, but what I tell women is if if they're curious about it, there's no reason it's not going to hurt anything for them to try it if it's something that they really want to experiment with and try. Um, the thing about perineal massage that I find is probably the most effective is getting used to relaxing around the intensity of the tissue stretching. I think that can be really valuable if you're, if you're practicing how you're responding to it and, and relaxing those tissues. I do think that that could have a a huge effect on, on supporting, um, you pushing slower during that time. And then also relaxing those tissues around what's happening. Yeah, I can so just give, I can give you a just a, just a, a off tangent anecdote. I had a woman once who who got pregnant. And she never really had intercourse. Um, she couldn't tolerate intercourse, but she got pregnant through the miracle of sperm mobility, I guess, from the outside. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she had what she had what would medically be called vaginismus. It's in other words, you putting one finger in her was excruciating for her, and it was everything was really really tight. And this is an ex I, this is just an uh, um, a single story. It's not something that you can necessarily rely on. But she when she was pregnant, she so she got to the hospital. We gave her an epidural right away. She labored. She delivered vaginally, and then she never had the problem again. It mm -hmm. went away. So mm -hmm. the whole birthing experience for her was completely therapeutic. I know it's an anecdote. Yeah, but. Yeah, no. I mean, I think I talked about that on the episode that we did with Hayes, where, you know, some women actually find that they have more pleasure after. And I've had women say, why is nobody talking about this? You know, that that our sexuality can actually improve after delivery rather than 
the because, other way around. Because, which, because there's which no all. money. There's no money in it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Which is why, which is why I hesitate to recommend things like you need vitamin E oil or you need an epino or you need these external things for your body to function properly because you know it's just more of the same. Like you you can't do what your body was designed to do, which you can. Your body was designed to do this. So um anything else about avoiding tearing before we get into repairing? No, well, what about what about the oh. use, what about the use of things like KY or oil or something? You know, during the pushing phase, we see always see a lot of times people will put KY on their fingers and they'll rub it just in the posterior, just inside the introitus, or they'll use some sort of oil, coconut oil down there. What about all that? That's sort of not naturally either. Cave women didn't have coconut oil. I, well, maybe they did actually, but but they didn't <laughs> they didn't have KY jelly or anything like that. So, what do you think about about doing that sort of thing, or is that just a, just another artificial thing that we do for no reason? I mean, I think that um, I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but it does make sense that the more lubrication we have, the more that we don't get those splits. Right. Because if the if the skin doesn't have that lubrication, then it can then it can have those splits that we get on the labial tissue. Um, so I don't think there's any harm if we're doing a land birth and doing that if a woman is desiring that. Um, I don't think that it has to happen. And I definitely think what's happening in the hospital with all of the stretching and pressure and lubrication and all like the manipulation that you see a lot of times in hospital push. deliveries. Yeah. Yeah, it causes it causes swelling. I think it causes more trauma, you know, and I I definitely don't think that a woman needs all of that manipulation in order to deliver her baby. Uh medicated or not medicated. Agreed. So, yeah, but I did want to take us one step back is when we're talking about perineal tissue preparation, sex. Healthy sex life is great for preparing the perineum. So if you, if you and your partner are not feeling connected, like we were talking about a couple of episodes ago, um, I would want, I would, I would invite you to explore what's going on and, and really try and support yourself and being able to have that kind of connection with your partner during that time. It's great. It's great for everything. The hormones that flood you, um, preparing the perineum and the connection that you have with your partner. Okay. So what happens if there is a tear, Stu? Well, it's, um, well, I'm not sure what you mean by that. I mean, you, you there are certain, well, there are certain tears that, that probably should be repaired. And there are certain tears that probably don't need to be repaired. And that assessment is something that just comes with uh, experience and time as to figuring out which ones are which. And I've become far less a suturer than I used to. I used to repair just about every little split that would be right at the six o'clock spot in the perineum. Now, if it really just involves the skin um, or the, a bit of the vagina, um, I don't think that a, that a suture is necessary. If the muscle is torn, uh, then yes, then I think that repairing is important. Uh, if you have lacerations or splits up by the urethra or the clitoral area, um, if they're not bleeding, I just would, you, you don't need to do anything about that. Now there are, somebody told me that if you have splits on both sides, that 
you might want to repair one side so that the splits don't fuse together um, because a woman's told to keep her legs together as much as possible over the next few days if she has little splits or tears. And there's a small chance that one side could fuse to the other side. And by the time you see them in a few weeks, you'd have to break that down. I have never seen that, but a midwife was, I was talking to at the uh, Kentucky conference was talking to me about that, said she's seen it. So I'm not sure that you would need to do that. You could pop, possibly just put a little Vaseline or a little something on, on that area to protect, protect, prevent it from actually coming in contact directly with the other side. But those things generally don't need stitches. Stitches are almost more painful, especially periclitorally or periurethrally. They're gonna sting when you, when you pee because it's like getting lemon juice on a paper cut. It, it's, the urine is acidic and it's gonna, so that's why we always put the peri bottle in there. We think it really makes sense to use a peri bottle. Um, when you have a labial menorah tear, where you have like a floppy piece that like now the anatomy looks funny, sometimes you wanna, you can repair that just for cosmetic purposes. It really is a, a, something that you can talk to the woman about at the time and see if she wants you to do it. But those, those things often they break down uh, they don't, they don't, it's very difficult to do a really good job at that point. So um, the thing about repairing that I will tell you, that's one of the thing, first things I learned in residency, and you know, that one really stuck with me is exposure. All right. You don't want to be crouched on your knees, turned sideways with no lighting and trying to do stitching. Okay. You need to get the woman in a position where you, where it's comfortable for you and she's on the end of the bed and you have good lighting. And you have, if you need an assistant to help, if there's a little oozing or bleeding and you need someone to touch and blot while you're doing it, don't short circuit that part of your repair. You can do a, the best repairs that you can do are the first ones. <laughs> you, you really don't wanna ever have to go back and fix something a second time. It's never gonna be as good as the first time. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, you are definitely, uh more of an expert on suturing as a surgeon, as an obstetrician who has practiced as long as you have um, than I am, I would definitely <laughs> defer to you when it comes to the actual act of suturing. Um, you are able, I've called you to come and support when I've had a third or fourth degree tear because they do happen. Even with all of the best prevention and support and everything, sometimes they do with a larger baby or a baby who's got a compound presentation, which means that they have like their hand up by their face or their elbow comes through. Um, there, there are times when, when you will have a big laceration. So I've always been grateful that you are someone that I could call on so that we wouldn't have to transport to the hospital after having such a beautiful delivery. Um, so I, I think I that's think because in California, the law says that you can't fix that. There are some states where, where some midwives are feel comfortable doing that, but most midwives are. are not trained in third and fourth degree tears. So, right. I, 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 I feel like when it comes to um, suturing your anus back together, the functionality of that, I, I would love to have a surgeon do that. I'm not, I don't feel confident in that. But See, well, I, and I, even have, I even have special instruments that I have these Alice clamps. I have this retractor um, so that you get, again, the reason I have a retractor and stuff like that is because exposure, especially if you have a fourth degree, it's tedious. It's probably going to take you 45 minutes or an hour to do it. You've got to do it right. You've got one shot to do it right the first time. Um, You've got to do that. Now, along that line, and maybe I'm getting ahead of you here, is there are times where a baby is crowning and you're seeing it crown. It may be compound or it may just be crowning. And that perineum on that woman is so tight 
It's so tight. And you know it's going to tear. Are you talking and, about the blanching? Yeah, you just, it, 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 just put, it's, the baby just reaches a point and it just won't go anymore because the baby needs to extend its head. And that perineal body is just so tight. And you know that if you keep going, there's a very good chance you're going to get one of those tears. Now, it, is a tear that's controlled better than a episiotomy? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But a lot of times when that happens, you end up getting that third degree tear, you know, through your anal sphincter. And if you were to cut an episiotomy, you wouldn't have gotten a tear. I know episiotomy is a four letter word, even though it's a, it's a nine or 10 letter word, but, but, <laughs> um, it's a, but it is something that you should keep in your, you know, in, in your bag. Toolbox. In your toolbox. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I needed mm -hmm. that word. Mm -hmm. Right. You should keep mm -hmm. it in your toolbox and not necessarily be afraid of an episiotomy. Yeah. Maybe you would have gotten a delivery where there were no tears, but, but the, if it was, it's a kind of a thing where when you have somebody who's bleeding postpartum, if, if, the, if the thought of an IV comes into your mind, they tell you, well, then put an IV in. Mm -hmm. And this is the same sort of thing here. If if you already expect that this is this is holding it back and it's and it's really going to blow up and you might end up getting a what is what's we call a stellate laceration, which is where it's like a, um, you're better off with a with a straight little cut in the middle, not a medial lateral. Those are to me are brutal, but a middle one. But but also using again your hand or whatever to protect the perineum as the baby comes out. Because even if you cut an episiotomy, if you're not the baby's head pops out straight. It doesn't come out by, by smooth extension. That can, It just can blow through there and it's going to tear all the way right into your rectum. You've got to be real careful with that. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, you just covered a ton of stuff. So I'll, I'll try and add a, a little bit to each one of those topics, ah. starting with the episiotomy. So I have only cut two episiotomies and both of them were as when I was a student and I was directed to do it. Um, and that was for uh, the baby more so than the perineum itself. It was um, decelerations where the midwife that was uh, precepting me felt like we'd rather have a baby that we didn't have to resuscitate than, than uh, cutting a small episiotomy. So, um, and what I was taught was a tiny, tiny, tiny nick like a tiny, it's like a very small, um, and, uh, it releases the perineum enough for the baby to be able to come through in the next, you know, push or so. And, and one of those didn't even need to be repaired because it was so small. It was just in the, in the tissue, not in the muscle. Um, so that I just want to add that in terms of, of, uh, doing a episiotomy. That's a, that's a good reason to consider an episiotomy too. If, if, if they're pushing and you're getting deeper and deeper variables and stuff like that, and the baby's on the perineum, but, but she's, and the baby's been on the perineum now for 20 minutes. Um, you, at that point, why are we risking, you know, why are we avoiding the, the doing an episiotomy because it's a four letter word. And then we're going to end up with a baby where we're, we're in more trouble with the baby. So it does expedite the delivery and it, and there are reasons to do that. There are not reasons to do it on every single birth, which is what I was taught when I was a medical student in, in, in Minneapolis. Um, every woman got a medial lateral episiotomy. And I just think, oh my God, I just look back at that. And I'm just wondering, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming they still don't do that, but maybe they do for all I know. There's some, there's some providers that do for sure. Um, okay. So when you were talking about deciding whether or not to do suturing, what I wanted to add is yes, that what we usually tell women is if it's aesthetic. So if there's something kind of, that's not going to come back together the way that we would expect, we would suture it. If it goes into the muscle, muscles don't come back together the way that tissue does. Um, so that's something that has to be repaired. Yeah. But, muscle, muscles retract. Right. And unless you pull them back together again, they're not going to ever, the end, the muscle is not going to heal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's not, in, it's, it's not aesthetic and it's not um, in the muscle and it's not, there's not bleeding that you need to stop. You can make the decision with informed decision-making process with the mom. So if you have a first time mom who can sit in bed, who can keep her legs closed and you feel like none of those things are, are um, at play from a midwife perspective, we oftentimes will recommend not suturing because when you inject with lidocaine, the tissue swells, you get trauma from the needle. When you put a needle through to suture and you add suturing material, you actually can cause more trauma to the tissue than if you just left it alone and let it heal naturally. And I've seen that. I've seen more pain with women healing. It takes longer to heal. Um, so when in, if you if you were able to not suture, it's usually better. Now, if you have a mom who's a second time mom and you can tell she's not going to stay in bed, she's got toddlers, she's just that type of personality. Even if it's not one of those other things, you may you may want to suture her because she, you know she may not really just take it easy enough for her body to be able to rest. So, um, yeah, and then. In terms of healing, uh, you talked about the peri bottle. I'm a I'm a big fan of sits herbs. Um, using those for healing, also sitting in a shallow bath, not on a what we call sits bath, which is that hard plastic thing that you put on your toilet. Because sometimes if you haven't sutured and you you sit on that, it can actually pull your tissues back apart. So sit just sitting in your tub and using those herbs is much better. Having time when you don't have anything on just like air drying, using warm uh, healing lights on, on the perineum can sometimes be a really nice thing too. Um, and, and taking it easy, you know, like just kind of need to take it easy uh, more so than we do. Yeah, and if I could just add, maybe this is really too technical for most people, but people want to know what suture I use. I use generally down there, uh, unless it's a fourth degree where I'm using an SH small needle and 4.0 Vicryl, I'll use 3.0 Vicryl or 2.0 Vicryl and I'll use it on a CT1 needle. And I like Vicryl better than Chromic. Um, that's just my preference, but you could use Chromic, whichever one's probably cheaper is probably the way to go um, because they, they all heal. Chromic dissolves a little bit faster. Vicryl lasts a little bit longer, um, but they're all dissolvable sutures. And uh, so that, you know, that's important. People again, I don't know that a lot of midwives get enough training in, in suturing. I mean, I, I know you practice suturing, but suturing beef tongue or whatever is not the same thing as suturing. It's just like doing simulations with uh, Sophie and her mom and not the same thing as a live mom and a live baby. So um, yeah, I don't know where you get more experience with that other than having a mentor, having a, a, a midwife that, that you're training with that's got good experience mm -hmm. um, or having people and like... Go ahead. 
I'm going to say, and keep practicing, just keep taking classes and practicing and practicing because we just don't do it that often. It's kind of like IVs, you know, we just, because we don't do it that often, we have to keep practicing the skill and, right. and, uh, resuscitation, you know, it's just like that doing it every two years. Right. And you want to so, build up you, it's really important that, you know, the proper tissues to bring together because you want to really, if they have a good, like a second degree tear or even a third degree tear and you you've repaired the sphincter. You, that's not all you have to do. You have to bring the transverse perineal muscles together. You have to bring the levators together. You want to build up at that perineal body, that distance between the vagina and the anus. And if you don't know what you're doing, you can actually end up with a vagina that's only like a centimeter away from mom's anus, and there's no muscle tone there at all. And then not only is the potential for, you know, a little bit of lo losing stool or that sort of thing, but, but, you know, no vaginal tone and then less satisfaction for yourself with intercourse and stuff. If you can have, you know, if you have better muscle tone, then it's better for everyone. So um, <laughs> if you don't know, if you don't know what you're doing, take a course, um, you know, maybe that's something that I'll end up doing too. I don't know. Maybe I'll teach a suturing class again without, without having real tissue planes and real muscles. Um, it's very hard to, to teach that. I think you should do. I think you should teach those midwives that are interested third and fourth degree repair. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. I just wouldn't know exactly. Um, I mean, I'd have to do it all with diagrams, I guess, because I, I don't know that there's a model that you can, can do that with. And then it, it's with, with diagrams or a model, you're not, you're not having bleeding and oozing and bad, you know, bad exposure and, and all that stuff that's going on, whatever else in the room at the same time, it's just not the same. And I can't, no, it's not. you know, if there's a fourth degree, if there's a fourth degree tear in Tallahassee, Florida, and one in Bozeman, Montana, I can't, you know, I can't pop in like I can if they're in Southern California. Like I've done that for 12 years. I've, well, I've done that for a long time. Even when I was still at Cedars, I would go, I think I would go to people's houses and, and help with third and fourth degree stuff. So, right. Yeah. Well, I told you it was a big topic. It was a lot to try and cover and we didn't even get into things like, uh, the honeymoon stitch or whatever that's thing that the doctors talk about. Um, but, but I think we talked about a lot of great stuff and hopefully uh, our fellow travelers enjoyed this episode. Well, the honeymoon stitch is actually just part of the regular <laughs> repair. If you really want to know, it's just bringing the bulbocavernosis muscles together. Um, they make a big deal out of it, but it's actually part of your normal repair. Um, so I'll, I'll put that myth to rest that that myth can go away. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, it's great to see you. I'm glad that you're enjoying your travels. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, so this has been RV life with uh, Bliss Young and, <laughs> and Sewer Fishbine. And we, we, got off we got off topic today, Bliss. We talked about uh, birth and pushing and tearing, but, but uh, we really should have spent more time on, uh, on getting cat hair out of blankets. And uh, <laughs> Next time, next time. Next time on the RV life podcast. <laughs> All right, Liz. Um, so uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you uh, next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 